really felt uh, the weight of, of, of this morning's message just because it's so pivotal. It's so, you know, this perfect love that overcomes um, that we've sung of this morning. And uh, when we look at um, the last couple of chapters uh, that Ken, if you want to, it's on the, if you missed it last week, I really encourage you to, to listen to the message. Um, there were some handouts which we actually took away for Connect Group this last week. Um, but if you need one, please let us know. Um, but uh, Nehemiah paints a beautiful picture of all God's people. Um, and they are so many multi, multi-talented, various skills. And they engaged. They're working side by side. They're rebuilding Jerusalem's wall. But then we see, but there's some opposition. And uh, there's, that's not only externally through some threats but, and intimidation, but internally through some discouragement and fear. And their response is both spiritual and practical. And uh, Ken touched on that. So in verse 9, it says, But we prayed to our God and posted a God day and night to meet this threat. That was verse 9. And there's verse 14. Uh, Nehemiah stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So if we bring us to chapter 5, and uh, we see now he's helping the poor, he's helping the oppressed, and I'm going to read quite a lengthy section. I'm actually going to cover the whole of chapter 5 and perhaps not uh, be able to to read through chapter 6, but we're going to be looking at um, some key words. You will see them highlighted as we go through it, and there's a reason for that. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain and that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters to have, have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting in- interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we as as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Let us return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that we've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Isn't that wonderful when a leader says something and they just say, yeah, sure. (laughs) And uh, I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, 
so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and be emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So the context is the people are upset because of a food crisis, a famine. And uh, that's highlighted because there are so many Jews that have now returned and it's putting pressure on the resources. Um, there's also taxation and heavy exploitation through high interest loans. These greedy loan sharks have come, repossessed their land, sold their families into slavery. And this was totally contrary to the word of God. In Deuteronomy, Exodus and Leviticus, God had ruled that provision be made for the poor. The rich were to lend to them without charging interest. And the key verse in this passage is Nehemiah challenging them, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? And so the key truth and title for this morning's message is Fear God in a Fallen World. And I found this book uh, that uh, is, I found a great resource, God's Word, Our Story. And it brings some, I feel, some pivotal um, truth out of these two chapters, chapters five and six. Uh, the author, Paige Brown, she starts by quoting the second stanza of John Newton's Amazing Grace. And it brought great revelation to me and, and it really stirred my heart. And it suggests that there are great lessons to be learned. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. What do we see in Nehemiah specifically about the fear that grace teaches? In the first place, it's foundational. The fear of God, which is a huge concept in scriptures, is the awe, the reverence, the honor, the worship demanded by the majesty of his person, his power, and his position. This fear is the only proper response to the God of the Bible. He is, of course, to be before all things in our hearts because he is before all things in reality. And so this fear is supremely uh, rational and reasonable. You see, fear that I'm frightened, bad, something bad is going to happen is not what the fear of the Lord is. When I'm in awe of someone, then I'm afraid that I'll offend or dishonor uh, that person in some way. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And the reason you need to fear the Lord in, in that way is because if you fear the Lord, then you won't be afraid of anything else and you won't be enslaved to anything else. It's that important. This was the source of Nehemiah's strength when he faced external opposition and internal opposition. And all of us have faced that. So it makes sense when the Proverbs tells us repeatedly, the, you know, the wisdom scriptures, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Put another way, there's no wisdom without the fear of the Lord. We can know many things. We can be quite intelligent, but if our knowledge is not founded upon and encased in the fear of God, we, then we just don't get it. Mr. Bean, how many of you, I mean, I think everybody, even on the plane, they have Mr. Bean sketches. But in the exam room sketch, he might have been smart enough. He might have known a lot of stuff. He might have known the right answers. But if he was working on the wrong paper, the best answers would be in the wrong place. It's just like that. If the fear of God is not in first place, it's that foundational. It's like suddenly there's panic. You can, you know, he's like, oh, no. And he's trying desperately to, to, to you know, do the right paper. But, but uh, so that if we look at, it's, it's in chapter one, it's so foundational to him. It's the catalyst for the entire book, his prayer. 
And Nehemiah's prayers are a great study of, this, uh, of Nehemiah. If you just look through his, 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 his revelation that comes through the prayer. In effect, he says to the Lord, I come to you primarily as the one who fears your name. That's who I am. Imagine, you know, our prayers like that. Lord, I come to you as one who fears your name. That, that's our first kind of revelation. God, I come to you. And he echoes this fear or his fear of God with the great names that, of God, the doctrinal names that he scatters throughout the book, the great and awesome God, the God of heaven. His words reflect understanding of a, majest, a majestic God, the one self-sustaining eternal God worshipped by the multitudes of heaven. Nehemiah gets it. Facing two test sheets, like, like Mr. Bean there, two test sheets, the fear of the Lord versus the fear of man. He's looking to the Lord in awesome reverence. He's not looking to fear of man and Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom. He's not looking to them. He's looking to the Lord. And uh, he lives. He doesn't just perform tasks in the fear of the Lord. He lives in the fear of the Lord. It's like his perpetual posture. It's not even like a drudgery or a duty. And he declares in, in 1.11 that he and others are your servants who delight to fear your name. And that echoes Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. T'was grace that taught his heart to fear. That fear is foundational. Then the second thing that fear is, is, is that, that grace teaches it's relational. Grace teaches that fear is relational. And it's strange to think this, that it's relational. We think it's, no, it's anti-relational because after all, wasn't the original effect of, of sin, um, you know, when the, the first thing that post fall Adam says to God is, I heard you coming and I was afraid, so I hid. That's broken relationship immediately led to fear. Fear of God's judgment. I've disobeyed, there's consequence. But John Newton clearly understood this fear that exposes our sin and the need of rescue from God's wrath. Such fear needs relief. Here's the point. Such fear comes by God's grace to awaken us to Him. Such fear is relieved by God's grace to restore us in right relationship with Him. I thought that was profound. Without a full revelation of God's grace, we will carry fear and it will cripple us. I always remember as a young believer struggling to feel that I, I was right with God. You know, that I'd done, no, you know, I should have been trying harder or I have the answers to, to people's objections or when they, you know, took exception to me that, that I, I somehow would be able to point them and, and, and reflect Christ better or well. And I, I'd put less and less trust in God and more and more trust in myself. And, and that was a slippery slope backwards, looking to myself rather than looking to God. And it's only when I came to the understanding or revelation of grace that I actually was freed of that. That I knew that if I never, you know, it's just like I couldn't make God love me more and I couldn't make Him love me less. And it was like God was pursuing me and I, and I, ran, and I came to the end of the highway and I let go and I let go and I just said, thank you, God. What an amazing grace towards me. And uh, so this gracious, gracious restoration of right relationship through God's covenant with His people is the story of the rest of the Bible. This restoration is powerful for us. And you know, there's personal possessive or possessive personal pronouns that fill the story. Martin Luther, he said, and that's you know, a great quote of his, I will be, um, he speaks about the heart of Christianity lies in its personal pronouns. He's really thinking of God saying, I'll be your God 
and you will be my people. That's a very personal God. I will be your God and you will be my people. In Nehemiah 5 and 6, we see these telling personal pronouns that are applied to fear. Can you believe it? They're applied to fear. And so when we look at um, Luther, he, he distinguished between what he called servile fear or a filial fear. But anyway, we'll get that. He says, what is servile fear? It's a dread and a terror that a prisoner in a torture chamber feels for his tormentor or executioner. In other words, I'll do whatever you want because I'm afraid of what, you, you know, what you're going to do. Um, and then there's this filial fear. It's a family fear. It's, it's the love and adoration of a child for a father who, whom he so dearly wants to please. He feels fear, not because he has any dread or terror or punishment, but because he's, he's eager to avoid disappointment or displeasing or offending because he's, he's, he realizes that the, the father or the, is the source of his security and love. So he's realizing there's my, my security, there's my love. And uh, so there is a place for servile fear for those who are not belonging to God. It's appropriate for them. But this filial fear or family fear replaces the servile fear. And a characteristic is a characteristic of the people of God. And this distinction is made so clearly for us in Exodus 20. The Israelites, they are filled with fear as God is visibly present on Mount Sinai. The mountain trembled with smoke and fire. And it was just terrifying, terrifying. Moses said to them, do not fear. For God has come to test you that, you may, uh, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. In other words, have no servile fear, for God has come to give us, his children, the privilege of family fear. Personal, possessive, that I'll be your father, you'll be my children. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And so Nehemiah, he also makes this distinction in, in the use of his language, covenant language. He's bringing personal pronouns to fear and he talks about our God the fear of my God, the fear of our God. According to Nehemiah, these, are, uh, these people are your servants who delight to fear your name. Very personal. So Nehemiah's fear is not only foundational, showing that he's a proper recognition of God, but also relational, showing that he belongs to God. And then Isaiah 33, 6 says, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, that the fear of the Lord is, 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 is Zion's treasure. We find Nehemiah in that is this treasured fear is not only inflaming his love for the Lord, but also his love for God's people. And so these personal pronouns and this, this kind of familial language, it, it extends to them. And in, 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 the, in this chapter, chapter five, his anger and confronting, his urging, his pleading are all because the victims are our brothers. And I underlined that in the passage as we went through it. He says, how can you do this to our brothers? He's bringing it down to a very personal level. It's covenant language. All the, it's family language. It's possessive language. It applies to these oppressed people. The fear of God extends to blessing to all the family and the family's at risk. And so he's distressed. So he says, let's stop until this problem is dealt with. You see, he cannot sacrifice the people to the walls. The walls are for the people. And so he's like, this is more important. The people are more important than even these walls. So he's concerned for them because not only for the oppressed, but also the oppressors. He's concerned for both because they're brothers. He calls them to assembly face to face and then he measures them and himself, not only against the legalities, but also against that relationship. So the fear of God must determine our treatment of brothers and sisters. 
So Nehemiah, God's using him to build his walls, but, but more importantly, to build his people because they are his permanent possession. Walls will crumble, walls will go, but people will last forever. And Jerusalem is a birth canal. It's an incubator. It's going to pass away. But the people are the permanent possession. And so he understands this because of the relational fear. And he can look at these people and say, I left it all so I could be with you, so I could serve you. I left the privilege of the palace in Babylon. I left my position and my comfort. I left it all so I could be with you because you are the apple of God's eye. You are his treasured possession. And you are this morning. T'was grace that taught his heart to fear. And that fear that filled Nehemiah was foundational and relational. But the third thing that fear was, was that grace teaches. The fear that grace teaches is motivational. And C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis? Great author. Uh, he's written many books. And obviously the Narnia series is perhaps the most well known. But uh, the screw tape letters... Uncle Screwtape gives his nephew Wormwood. What a name, Wormwood. <laughs> Excellent advice about keeping his human patient, as he's called in the book, from making any spiritual progress. Screwtape writes, keep in mind his mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something inside him. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything as long as he doesn't convert it to action. It doesn't matter how much he thinks. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imaginations and affections will harm us if we can keep them out of his will. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to act. And in the long run, the less you'll be able to feel. Some great truth right there. You see, Nehemiah would be a frustrating patient to any demon <laughs> because the fear of the Lord comes spilling into his mind or out of his mind and, and the heart is, is an irrepressible motivation for drastic action of justice and mercy. The text tells us he gets very angry. He's emotionally involved. Yeah, he's invested. He doesn't just get angry. He acts. The poor are suffering under hard times as well as hard hearts. He calls together the entire assembly and he deals with the problem. You see, his priorities are God's priorities. You see, what good would it be building, building external walls around internal corruption? It's God who stopped. So he calls the people, everyone, to a higher standard. And what motivation? Verse 9, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? In other words, is the fear of our God not motivating us to do more than this? That motivation, he's saying, should take them beyond the law of no slavery, of no interest, of the, all the way to generosity. He's saying, let's give it all back. Let's give it all back. All the interest, all the extortion. Let's give it all back. And he's including himself, even though I don't think he was, he was just being what I would call identificational repentance or vicarious repentance. He was saying, I'm as you are. You and I, we covenantly, my debt is your debt and your wrongs affect me and, and, and my wrongs affect you. But we, we're in this together. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not sitting in the high holy walls passing judgment. I'm saying we're in this together. Let's do the right thing. Let's do the right thing. Let's give it all back. No one should benefit from the needs and suffering of brothers. We should bear their needs with them. And then he says, he, he kind of really get, takes it to the next level if they don't take him seriously enough. He, he puts the fear of God in them as he calls in the priests and makes them swear to do what they've promised and gives them a visible curse of shaking out his garment to emphasize, you better take this seriously. We better, and we're talking about the fear of our God and what that demands, you know. 
Um, so he goes on to talk about his own long-term move beyond generosity all the way to sacrifice. And so in Nehemiah 5, in these last five verses, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their, for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because the fear of God, because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for every day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. 12 years a governor. But he doesn't want to take the food allowance for, or a stipend because that would be burdensome for the people. He's not just saying, well, look, uh, you know, shut the doors. I'll live lean. I'll pay it my, for my own expense. No, no. He's filling his table up with 150 people every day, paying for them at his own expense. Because, why? Because he, taking care of him would be too heavy for them. So he takes care of them. Why does he do that? Because of the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And he's motivated to unwavering perseverance. He's committed to rightly getting the job done. Ten months, that's not a long time. Ten months from the time he was in, uh, hearing in the citadel of Susa about the plight of Jerusalem to the walls finished. 52 days on the wall and the work's done. 52 days. It's less than two months. That's amazing. I mean, we saw last week the walls, they're quite extensive. And yes, there were people working shoulder to shoulder and working day and night. But man, that was, it was incredible to, to accomplish that. And they could see that it was the favor of God all over it. And, uh, and Nehemiah tells us all that he did was because of the fear of God. So a godly fearer is a godly doer. Fear of God is not, it's not contemplation, it's motivation. And Another question, how many of you are familiar with Corrie ten Boom, Second World War? She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. It was made into a film. In fact, CFS, Christian Fellowship School, they did it into a school production. My kids were involved. And talking about school productions, Pilgrim's Progress, 22nd to the 24th. Anyway, it's the end of February. It's on the notice board. Please have a quick squiz at that because it's, it's really... Um, it's going to be, Pilgrim's Progress is also a great story of John Bunyan. But when I look at this story here, um, it's a story of a completely ordinary Dutch family made so unbelievably extraordinary by their commitment to the Lord and what he placed in front of them. And it challenges me because when we face persecution or when others are facing persecution, how will we respond? And uh, before they were arrested, they, before they even built the secret room in their home, the Nazis had invaded Holland, banning Jewish citizens from freely walking around the streets. So what did she do? Corrie, she began picking up and delivering her family's watch shop um, work for Jewish customers in their homes. And uh, one evening she's on such an errand in the home of a doctor and his family and she picks up on the story. They were a very old Dutch family. The portraits of the walls could have been a textbook of Holland's history. The Hemstras and I were talking about the things that were discussed and 
And whenever a group of people got together in those days, when, they, when down the stairs piped a childish voice, Daddy, you didn't tuck us in. Dr. Hemstra was on his feet in an instance with an apology to his wife and me. He hurried upstairs and in a minute we heard a game of hide and seek going on and the shrill laughter of two children. That was all. Nothing had changed. Mrs. Hemstra continued with her recipe for stretching the tea ration with rose leaves and yet everything was changed. For that instant, reality broke through the numbness that had grown in me since the invasion. At any minute, there might be a rap on the door. These children, this mother and father, might be ordered to the back of a truck. Dr. Hemstra came back to the living room and the conversation rambled on. But under the words, a prayer was forming in my heart. Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people in any way, any place, any time. Just think of the lives that God saved through that prayer. And the lives that he's blessed through that prayer. And the challenges have we prayed a similar prayer? Has the fear of the Lord motivated a prayer like that in our hearts? Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your work in any way, any place, any time. And that seems to be Nehemiah's ongoing prayer in his heart because he mentions walking in the fear of the Lord. It wasn't a, you know, walking is... It's, it's continuous. It's, it's an action. It's, it's, it's something that we, it's outworked in our lives if we're walking in something. It's not the fear of God unless we at various times are motivated to do what we would never do otherwise. Think about this. Did Noah like animals? Did Abraham like a, a foreign country? Did Moses like desert camping? Did Ruth like gleaning in fields? Did uh, John the Baptist like confrontation? Did Paul like prison? Did Nehemiah like construction? These people didn't love their assignments. I don't believe they did. They feared the Lord. And those were the assignments God gave them. That was the motivation. Not the love of the thing, but the fear of the Lord. It was grace that taught all those hearts to fear. That fear was foundational. That fear was relational. That fear was motivational. And then that grace teaches us, in some ways, a, a new word, resignational. The grace that teaches us is resignational. You see, Nehemiah's praying arrow prayers and they reveal those arrow prayers, as I mentioned, they reveal the fear of the Lord. He's constantly looking to the Lord for strength, for safety, for security, for um, a reward and, and even revenge. It's, you know, it's in there. Avenge me, Lord. <laughs> you know, vindicate me, Lord. Those kind of prayers. He resigns himself solely and wholly unto God. In that prayer in chapter 5, 19, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for these people. And you might think that's a little self-righteous. It might be a bit of a strange prayer. But he's only seeking reward and only in the approval of God. It's like, it's like that's where his focus is. He doesn't care what, what others think. He only cares what the Lord thinks. And he's done it for one reason. He's a father pleaser. He wants to please God. And, and, and you know that we know that he did because the psalmist promises the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Psalm 147 verse 11. And then we look at this prayer in, in chapter 6 verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things they did and also the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He prays against his enemies, but he doesn't prescribe against his enemies. He's not saying, Lord, smite them down. He's not saying that, but he, he leaves that to the Lord. He's just saying, Lord, you know, you know their hearts, you know what they've done, you know the harm they've brought. 
And uh, that's a good position of, of, of the heart. And then in uh, 6, 9, Oh God, strengthen my hands. You know, he's faced a lot of personal attacks. There's been intimidation. There's been sabotage. There's threats. There's slander. And yet his, his, Lord's, his prayer is not saying, God, change this situation. It's rather, Lord, strengthen me. Silence my fears. Make me strong in you. And maybe, you know, the Psalm, I mean, Isaiah 35, I can remember praying this out in a prayer meeting. And it was a prophetic prayer because that night, I think we heard there would have been a terrible earthquake in Taiwan. And uh, this was the scripture that I'd prayed out in the prayer meeting. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold your God. He will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's running to the Lord for strength, for success, for safety. And these prayers are just a sample of his resigning himself or resignational fear, if I can just say that. His confidence is in God, nowhere else. We know that he has us, that we belong to him, that it all belongs to him. And Nehemiah knew that too. He's our hiding place. He's our safety. And we need to almost resign our hearts with Nehemiah and rest there. It was grace that taught his heart to fear. The foundational, the relational, the motivational and resignational fear. And grace, my fear is relieved, plural. And grace, my, when the great love and fear and reverence and awe of God's in place, then other fears are relieved. Burden or, the fears are the burden that grace relieves. And uh, unless you fear God, you have to be afraid of, of other things. That's what really it's saying. And uh, so when I think of, when you set your fear on God above, only then can you deal with the, with the below. Sorry, let me say that again. Set your fear on God above. Only then can you deal with what is below without fear. And I think Jesus speaks into this so powerfully. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Nehemiah's greatest fear is not death. It's offending the Lord. And the point is this, instead of being overcome by fears, Nehemiah overcomes by fear, the fear of the Lord. And Ecclesiastes, as we wrap up, we are to fear God and obey Him. That's the end of the matter and to be the sum of our lives. And that's wisdom, friends. It's only by grace that our fears are relieved. It's not amazing fear that He called as Him. It was amazing grace. <laughs> How precious did that grace appear and taught my heart to fear. How precious did that grace appear and taught my heart to fear. You see, the Son came in our flesh, delighting and living in, sorry, the Son came in our flesh, living and delighting in the perfect fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11, verse 3. Jesus lived in that and he delighted in that fear. The fear took him to a garden different from Eden. He was not there to go running from God in shattered relationships. He came there running to his Father to collapse on him in order to face his fears. That garden of Gethsemane, it's not to say too strong to say, it's, it's not that it's too strong to say he was fearful. It's not strong enough. We, defi we see descriptions of unparalleled distress, of dreadful anguish, of depth of sorrow, of, that it's death itself, is of an agony so great that it's his capillaries, his blood vessels burst and blood sweat actually poured from him. And, and, and it was all rational fear. In other words, realistic fear. 
Those fears were only intensified by the realities he faced in the garden during that divine conversation. That night in Gethsemane is the only occasion when Jesus is said to have fallen prostrate on his face. And as he covered his eyes, he saw nothing but hell or yawning before him. He has the horror of the one who lived holy before the Father, facing complete abandonment by him as he became the very sin that God hates. And we sang that so powerfully this morning. And yet for all that repeated stress on his agony, the dominant point of each gospel account is Jesus' resolution to embrace the Father's will. Your will, Father, not mine. He willingly gave his life. No one took it from him. He trusted the Father with his, all his heart. And even when his heart was broken, so much stronger in him than all the fear was his absolute submissive love for the Father and his absolute unstoppable love for you and me. Those, lo those, those loves overcame what was overwhelming. You know, that perfect love that overcomes. That perfect love, as we sang this morning. He embraced it, went to the cross, he went to the tomb. And we never have to face his fear because his perfect love and what it accomplished for us casts it out. Perfect love casts out all fear, all the dread, all the terror, all the horror, all the agony because he bore every single one of those crushing realities for you and for me. Our Savior's love doesn't leave us without those fears. The forgiveness by that love actually wins for us the gift of fear. With you, this is a key verse as I land. With you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. That's a gift. With you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Do you have any idea how much God loves you? Perhaps that's where some of you and I are. I want you to know this morning, God loves you. As we belong to him, as Nehemiah did, that perfect love. That perfect, that wonderful grace, that amazing grace will dispel other fears. Father, I want to thank you. God, when we are beset with fear, when we're anxious, we can present prayer before you with thanksgiving. And you said you'll give us a peace to guard our hearts and minds above everything, day and night. Day and night. Military sentry, guarding our hearts and minds day and night. You will give us. It's a gift. You'll give us peace, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for as we center our hearts and minds on you and live out our lives before you, it will dispel other fears, plural. Standing in awe and reverence. And I thank you that you are a great and awesome God. Open our eyes to see It was grace that caught, caused my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And I thank you for that reality this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.